Bill Kilday helped put a killer app in your pocket and made the world infinitely easier to navigate. Follow the blue arrow right this way. This is the National Podcast of Texas, a production of Texas Monthly, the national magazine. Welcome to the National Podcast of Texas, brought to you this week by Frost Bank and the Opt for Optimism initiative. I'm Andy Langer. On this edition, we'll take a deep dive into the Google mapping revolution that forever changed the way we get from point A to point B and augmented our reality. Austin's Bill Kilday and a Texan-heavy crew of true believers were originally part of a tiny beleaguered startup called Keyhole, a mapping company that almost fell victim to the tech bubble burst, but wound up shrinking the world with what we now know as Google Maps and Google Earth. Kilday chronicles the creation of what it isn't hyperbole to describe as one of the most essential applications ever devised in his new book, Never Lost Again. It's a story with deep roots in Texas's early tech scene, and from the iPhone to self-driving cars, from Uber to Pokemon Go, mapping technology is definitely the gift that keeps on giving. Kilday documents it all in the book and in our conversation, which also includes a preview of the latest project from the Google Mapping spinoff he works for now, Harry Potter Wizards Unite. He's our sole guest this week on the National Podcast of Texas. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So you just maybe bragged a little and told me you're at the top of the cartography charts on Amazon. Exactly. (laughs) Zoom to the top of the cartography charts. I'm sure you were following that. I was. uh, Who knew there was such a thing? But it is a book about maps, but more than maps, maps that changed all of our lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it crazy to you just on a mental health level (laughs) that every time somebody opens Google Maps, that's something you were there for day one? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I am still sort of in awe and wonder the fact that I was a part of something that is used by billions of people. Um, Google, at their developer relations conference a few weeks ago, announced that there are a billion users a day of its Google mapping products. So, uh, yeah, it is, it's phenomenal to have been a part of, and that was part of the reason why I wrote the book, was I was a part of this thing that everyone uses, and um, I thought it was a story that folks might want to hear about. Like, where did it come from? And it's not a super wonky story. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a story with personalities, with Mm -hmm. twists and turns, and it's not all, hey, this is how the Google mapping vehicles come up with that data. Was that tempting, though, to do some of that? Because you don't do a lot of it. Well, I mean... That book certainly would be a book that could be written, and it probably, um, you know, would have been more of a technical compendium on how maps are created. So there's some of that, but I purposefully was, I mean, I'm a marketing guy, right? So part of it is I'm not an engineer by training, and so my natural inclination is to take a, what is a very uh, technically complex subject matter and try, try to boil it down to, Uh, simple to understand terms. Uh, I think the fact that I had a writing coach named um, Kirk Walsh, she really helped me, because she's not a tech person at all, she really helped me 
bring the book down to a level that would be understandable and fun for the non-techie. And I think we got there. Let's go all the way back. So Austin is now this third coast for tech. Mm -hmm. But at the time that you guys were living at Jester, Mm -hmm. at the time that Dell was living at Jester and, you know, ultimately getting kicked out of UT and starting Mm -hmm. Dell, there was this early wave of tech here that you were a part of that I don't think we think of when we look around at the current tech landscape and the fact that a game-changing product like this came out of it is pretty amazing. Yeah, certainly. I mean, Austin has been on the tech roadmap for a while, uh, mainly as a hardware town, you know, those sort of MCC consortium, Symatech, um, uh, uh, really the, the, the chip design and manufacturing that happens in Austin, really out of uh, being led by the electrical engineering department at UT being one of the top three electrical engineering departments in the world. Um, has really cemented Austin's leadership in the tech community, but it's been more of a hardware thing. And so the idea of Austin as a software hub is something that is um, relatively new to Austin, um, but you're, you know, you're starting to see more successes. I think that meeting John Hankey at Jester Dorm 1985, um, and I go on to work for him for the next, you know, 33 years. So that's a that's a part of it for me is that Austin has uh, been a fertile ground for software industry folks as well. We wrote a story not that long ago about John Hankey. Uh, it is called the Steve Jobs of West Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a gross over exaggeration, right? I don't know how he feels about that. I think it's probably makes him a bit uncomfortable to be compared to Steve Jobs, who was a childhood idol of his. But um, it's an it, it was a wonderful um, uh, biography in Texas Monthly of John. I, I really enjoyed that article. Um, and but yeah, he's a he's a guy that grew up in a small town, Cross Plains, Texas, population eight hundred ninety three. Um, when I met him in nineteen eighty five, Jester was twenty nine hundred students. So. The dorm was over three times as large as his hometown. Um, but yeah, he's gone on to do great things, started a, um, uh, multiple gaming companies. Um, I was working for him through the mid and late 90s um, on a sort of part-time consultant, consulting basis. Uh, worked as the marketing director at the Austin American Statesman for a few years and then John called me one day in Austin and said hey I've got to show you this new thing Uh, and that was really the start in 1999 for me. Now he shows you this new thing and he's basically got to set up a computer at your home Mm -hmm. but once people on a wider scale a handful of people got to see this Mm -hmm. new thing at that point what were people's reactions where they could and that new thing we should point out is that they were able to zoom in on Earth down Mm -hmm. to the satellite photo of their particular home. Mm -hmm. And so everyone wanted to search their home or their childhood home or the ball fields they played on. Mm -hmm. You describe it in the book, and it seems like a moment for people where technology becomes real to them in a sense. A a religious moment for some people. I mean, some people would be 
almost brought to tears when they would see it. And um, I think that experience of, for the first time, zooming from outer space down to a satellite view of your home, whether it be in Google Maps or in the desktop client Google Earth, I think that that is one of those seminal technology moments that you kind of remember the first time you ever saw it. I mean, I can remember my first Google search, um, and I can remember my first um, email, you know, to date myself, you know, uh, in 1993. And I can remember the first time that I ever zoomed from space down to what was obviously my rooftop of my house in, in what would eventually become Google Earth. It was called Keel Earth Viewer at the time. Uh, yeah, it was a religious moment. And I got to travel the world and show that to people for the very first time. And it was, uh, it was the easiest thing to sell in the world. I would just flip open my laptop and say, hey, you want to fly to your house? And it was an easy sell. Now, that was a sell for real estate people. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a practical application that you and I as regular people might have a use for, though. Right. That took the street view, right? Or at least the directions part of this. Well, I think, um, yeah, to back up to 2001, 2002, so the software application, the company was called Keyhole, uh, the, the software was called EarthViewer. And at that time, 2001, 2002, there were only about 10 or 15% of the world's computers that could actually run the software. So, um, so you're starting at a deficit there. Yeah, we're starting at a deficit there. And so we had built a product that was really suited for computers that were gonna be out in 2004 and 2005. So very small percentage of folks with broadband internet access with uh, 3D graphics chipsets in their, in their computers. Um, and the browsers just weren't able. So the web browsers themselves had not evolved. And so um, John Hankey, to his credit, I think um, we really struggled along for a long time from 2001 to 2004, but he purposefully built a product for where these things were gonna converge. So he was building, you know, he was, he was putting in a, a house before the, the highway had built it, had been built out to it. And so eventually those technologies start to converge around 2004, 2005. And only then did the experience become something that could be widely experienced by everyone. Um, and then of course it took the fact of uh, Google with its boundless resources to make the product free. So that was another huge hurdle. Of course, we didn't we didn't give it away for free. Uh, we sold it. We sold it to commercial users, and so they would pay us six hundred dollars a year for a subscription to the service that was probably about a tenth of what your free version of Google Maps or Google Earth was, and they were paying uh, six hundred dollars per user per year to for that experience. We knew once the iPhone came out. I mean, that was the killer app. Mm -hmm. It was pretty obvious right mm -hmm. away. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we all had little GPS units mm -hmm. that were doing directions. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't like we were going directly from the AAA guidebooks mm -hmm. or from even turn by turn from MapQuest. Mm -hmm. Did we know that it would be a success the way it was once it was on the phone? Because it wasn't that big of a leap, and yet it was. 
Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, there was this sort of bridge technology of the personal navigation devices, Garmin Nuvies and TomToms and Magellans. Um, that was a multi-billion dollar market. They still sell those devices today and do very well with them. Um, that, Although you guys put a big dent in they, that. Yeah, we put a big dent in that. But, but um, you know, the key thing was that those devices were in your car, right? They weren't always with you 24 hours a day. And so... You know, that's a big thing, right? You're walking around town, you're on the subway, you're uh, riding your bike. You know, you don't carry your Garmin Nuvie with you. But starting in in 2006, um, or I should say June of 2007 is when the first iPhone shipped, um, you had this supercomputer in your pocket at all times for the first time. And you're right, that's when the sort of shift happened. And I don't know that we anticipated that it would happen as quickly as it did. But Google Maps and Google Earth turned from something that people were using once or twice a week to something that people were using once or twice a day on that device. And so because it was always with you and because you were untethered, you were out in the real world and you were out and about, and suddenly you, you, you had this thing that you could rely on in a way that was sort of beautifully seamless um, and always with you at all times. And so quickly, the iPhone, um, after 18 months of being out, had surpassed all Google Maps traffic on all other devices combined. Um, and that was when the iPhone was shipping on one carrier, it was AT&T, and essentially in the United States, um, and a handful of other markets, but essentially one carrier, one market, and it was doing more traffic to Google Maps than all other devices combined. And pretty quickly, people started, because Google had made it open source, you could do these mashups mm -hmm. and you could show where coffee shops were, mm -hmm. or you'd get these pop-ups, or there was the ability to change the maps. That mm -hmm. was a big thing too, right? Yeah, and that was one that was really unexpected. This notion of of that um, there was these databases of various geographic data sets that were um, living in in sort of sequestered away databases, whether it be crime incidents or um, apartments for rent or housing or uh, restaurant reviews. And so you had these sort of databases that existed. Um, very quickly after the launch of Google Maps, some smart engineers um, reverse engineered Google Maps and figured out that they could create their own version of Google Maps. And so it uh, started famously by a guy named Paul Rademacher, who was an animator at DreamWorks. And he was um, having a difficult time finding an apartment in San Francisco. He was using Craigslist. He downloaded all the Craigslist listings and did some data munging. Uh, and then sort of sprinkled those apartment listings on top of his version of Google Maps and, and, and launched a website called housingmaps.com. Uh, housingmaps.com within a week had sort of exploded in the San Francisco scene as this uh, uh, superior way to find a house in, in San Francisco. That's a, that's a difficult chore. So um, that was the very first one. It's called Google Maps Mashup, where you're basically taking Google Maps and mashing it up with some other data set um, the next one that came out was a crime statistic uh, database in, in Cook County from uh, in Chicago, and they launched chicagocrime.org. Um, within, within days, you had hundreds of these sites popping up, copycat sites uh, popping up around the world. 
I mean, it was kind of this wild west of web developers with some data set and Google Maps at the at the at the base layer, um, and so Google had to figure out a way of productizing that. It sort of was like a, a, a you know, a nightclub with no doorman, you know, mm -hmm. and so they had to basically figure out a way of controlling access to it, and they created this product called the Google Maps API uh, application programming interface that allowed web developers to create their own um, experiences. And so that then became the base map on top of which all sorts of new businesses were founded. It started with these, you know, um, individuals with a single data set, but then you had real businesses, Yelp, OpenTable, Zillow. So basically companies with these uh, Uber, uh, Tinder, anything with a geolocation to it, with a you know, with the latitude and longitude, Google Maps became the the ultimate base map on top of which they could draw a completely new company. How many different ways, if we go back a step, did this almost not happen? Because of the cash, because yeah. somebody didn't believe in it. I mean, that the book is filled with yeah. what could have been the path not taken. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, well, I guess the the first lesson there is if you're going to start a brand new company with a revolutionary new idea, it's probably not best to start it in 2001 in the middle of the dot-com crash. We could not have picked a worse time to have started a company. Um, and so the company limped along with very, very limited resources, very limited capital. There's a side of me which says that, that thinks that that might have been a benefit, the fact that we didn't have much money, that we had to very quickly get to market with a product that we knew we could sell that satisfied some market needs somewhere. And so we really scrambled to find what that market would be. We tried every industry imaginable, um, energy sector, entertainment, uh, architects, land use planning, forestry, um, city planning, uh, military, and eventually residential real estate, and we eventually settled in on commercial real estate as the first, first folks that would actually write us checks. And, and those guys, the, uh, that market kept us alive during those very lean years of 2001, 2002, um, when we were really very low on cash. The company essentially ran out of cash by the end of 2002. Um, John Henke was, uh, much to his wife's chagrin, writing personal checks out of his own account to cover payroll. Several people left the company. Um, lots of vendor calls that would go um, unanswered. And, you know, we, I even started looking for another job. And, and eventually, um, you know, there's a decision made to r raise one more round of capital to keep us afloat for one more quarter. Of business, and that was in uh, January of 2003. And so we had essentially one more shot at it, one more roll of the dice uh, to make something happen. And luckily for us, um, we had this, uh, you know, unique event with CNN, which started to use our software on the air, and that really saved the company. And that was during the war. That was during the war. So during the invasion of Iraq, March of 2003. Um, one of the markets that we had gone out and pursued, and again, we're just trying every market imaginable. I'd gone to, back home to Houston and had gone into uh, Channel 11, KHOU-TV in Houston and sold a license to 
um, Channel 11, and they would essentially use Keel Earth Viewer to fly around Houston to cover traffic incidents and crime incidents or some refinery that blew up. They would use Keyhole Earth Viewer to fly it around. They figured out it was cheaper to do that than to send out the helicopter. So um, we started selling into the local broadcaster market, and that led to um, opportunities with larger national broadcasters, including CNN. Um, in March of 2003, we signed a deal with CNN. We can't get any money out of them at all. We tried and tried to get them to pay us money because we really needed the cash. They said, we can't pay you the cash, but uh, well, if you can't pay us cash, will you at least use our, when every time you use your, our software on the, on the screen, will you put up our URL, our website on the screen, keyhole.com? And they said, okay, we'll do it. And then uh, U.S. Uh, invaded Iraq, and Miles O'Brien, Wolf Blitzer, the, you know, you remember the whole situation room and the map table and all that. They essentially turn, at the height of the war, CNN, um, by the way, Fox didn't exist then. Fox was started in 19, well, Fox barely existed. So uh, it was far and away the leader. Right. And they used it as a, essentially to cover the war and to do armchair bomb damage assessment of what was going on in Baghdad. And so suddenly we went from a company that had no exposure, very limited economic prospects to one in which we couldn't keep up with the demand. Um, and so, you know, we were sort of over, overrun with demand suddenly in two, starting in March of 2003, and that was really a huge turning point for the company. And all those industry sectors that you ran through mm -hmm. a few minutes ago, every one of those industry sectors, even I could tell you a way they use yeah. this product now. It's yeah. that obvious. Yeah. And they all had to come back around, I guess. They did, yeah. And the CNN, they, it helped in all those sectors, you know, sort of the exposure. It wasn't just that consumers could then fly around to Baghdad and check out the war. They could, you know, it was all those, those um, commercial entities as well. Not to mention the fact that, you know, who's watching the CNN, who's watching the war coverage on CNN? You know, you imagine the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State and the President, the Vice President, every ambassador, every senator, you know, you, you know, the CENTCOM control in Tampa Bay, you know, if you're in that business of putting on a war, you know, you're watching CNN and you're looking up on the screen and you're seeing this software application, which by the way, is better than any software application that they have, right? So it turned into this thing where everyone was coming to us and saying, why the hell don't I have that on my desk? And so, uh, the military and intelligence community quickly become big customers of our software as well. And ultimately, the CIA and CNN mm -hmm. make it so that we have what we have today. Yes. I mean, essentially, uh, those entities, uh, you know, CNN via a organization called Incutel, which is the venture capital arm of the CIA, uh, does a deal with Keyhole to um, essentially use that software with much higher resolution imagery than we had access to. The book is called Never Lost Again because we're the last generation that would be lost, that wouldn't be able to find their way to the HEB. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Is that the hardest thing to wrap your head around? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, my friend Michael Jones on the team put it to me that way, just to, you know, sit back and think about that. You know, 200,000 years of human beings on this planet, and we're the last people to ever know what it was like to fully be lost, to be in the way that we always were before. Um, and I have a 15-year-old daughter now, and, you know, she's got Google Maps whenever she goes out. And so it's a... Um, it's probably saved some marriages, right? It's probably, you know, the like, don't have to stop and ask for directions or that fight about where you are. Uh, it is mind boggling to think about how uh, quickly the world changed to adopt this new technology. It's also interesting that these apps change traffic patterns, that they yeah. send traffic through places that didn't used to have traffic, Yeah. that the program is changing communities. Yeah. Yeah. which is an unintended effect, obviously, but an effect nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, way, the way to think about that is sort of probably making traffic patterns a bit more distributed and efficient. I think um, Google's acquisition of Waze, the company uh, Waze, W-A-Z-E, in 2012, uh, was never relabeled as a Google product. I think a lot of people don't even realize that that's a Google product now. See, in my head, they're competitors. They're not. It's owned by Google. Huh. Yeah. So 2012, Google buys that company for uh, $956 million. So a uh, very successful startup company based in Israel. And um, that data now feeds into Google Maps. Actually, within six months of that company being acquired, all that data, and they've done a very smart thing, which is essentially gamified uh, the reporting on real-time traffic conditions. Uh, whether it be a road accident or a um, construction project, et cetera, um, or the presence of police, you know, the speed trap stuff. That stuff um, was gamified by that company Waze. Google buys it in 2012 and it feeds into Google Maps. And so now when you go from point A to point B in Google Maps and you want directions, you're routed not just according to the standard um, routing algorithms, but it's also taking into account the traffic backup at, in different street segments, and it's rerouting you if there's um, bad traffic. So am I essentially getting the same directions from Google Maps and Waze? I'm just not getting all the fun bells and whistles when I use the Google Maps. That's right. But it's the same information I'm being provided. The data you're being provided is the same. So the, the Waze data is being fed into, into Google Maps now. Huh, because in my head, yeah. not only are they competitors, but sometimes I'll go to Waze because I think Google Maps might be wrong. Or the opposite, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll do one to the other. Yeah. Which I guess has been a fool's errand. I just well, learned that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there might be a delay of some sort between Waze and Google, but um, my understanding is that data is within minutes fed into the Google Maps product. And so... Um, it's certainly not more than 30 minutes off, so um, that data is making its way over into Google. Um, and, you know, it, it's a, the world's a dynamic place. It's a changing place. And so all that data and keeping it up to date is this Sisyphean task. And once you're done with it, it's you, you got to start all over again. And so... And that was one of the hurdles early on, right, is people said, well, you're going to have to map this yeah. constantly. yeah. Well, it was one of the, <laughs> when this Google Street View project was started in 2006, it was one of the things I just couldn't wrap my head around, like, I, you're going to go drive, you know, 
six million miles of roads in the United States alone, so whatever it is worldwide, you're going to go, you know, hire a fleet of cars or or buy a fleet of cars, hire people to drive the planet mapping the entire world. Um, And it's going to take years. And when you're done with it, you're going to have to start all over again because it's going to have changed when the last time you did it, right? And so I just couldn't, I thought it was just the, well, in the book, I even say, I think it was the stupidest idea I'd ever heard. It's econo- economically ridiculous to undertake um, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to do, uh, hundreds of cars. And, and so, yeah, once you do it, you would have to sort of start all over again. The world is a dynamic, changing place. Um, that probably, to me, is the most surprising thing about the whole thing is, is the size of the effort that goes into something that looks so simple to you and you pull out your phone and you use Google Maps and the idea that there are 7,000 people working on that team today and that there are 25 million changes being processed every single day by those people um, and the Waze data and it's just this dynamic, fluid, ever-changing thing that you just think it's so simple but there's really this monumental effort that's going on behind the scenes to make it happen. And if it doesn't work even for a minute, <laughs> we get super frustrated. <laughs> exactly. Even though there's exactly. information beaming from satellites and all of those things you just mentioned. Is it amazing? Yeah. It's really aggravating. Yeah. If I it says yeah. It takes an extra second yeah. to process something. I know, exactly. And by the way, it's free. Did we mention that? Right. You know, it's so it is uh, amazing how quickly we will just expect something that um, is this uh, amazing thing. The next level of all this is the stuff you're involved with now, mm-hmm. uh, Pokemon Go. Mm-hmm. And what's the other project? Harry Potter Wizards Unite. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this is more gamification. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's pure game. Yeah. But you're running around using the mapping software mm-hmm. to achieve tasks, collect things. Mm-hmm. We obviously saw that with the Pokemon Go situation. Mm-hmm. This next level, it builds on this, but where's it, where's it going? Well, um, I think I'd start by saying that it's it's no coincidence that you know, the success of Pokemon Go is very map-based. It's very map-oriented. It's all location-oriented. And the same people that were part of that original Keyhole team, there were 29 of us that were acquired by by Google. Many of us stayed on the Maps team all through those years. Uh, John Henke ran the entire Geo division for 10 years at Google. Uh, we've now spun out as a separate company called Niantic. Of the 29 original, eight of us are now working on Niantic. So there's a core group there of folks that are all mapping folks. And so, uh, and we've essentially turned the real world into the game board um, and turned, um, uh, you know, with Pokemon Go, it, it basically themed the world with Pokemon characters that you go out and collect. But the only way that you move in that world, the only way that you move in that game is by standing up and walking around. We used to get all kinds of customer support uh, uh, questions. But my favorite one was, um, "How do I move in this game?" So, uh, you know, well, you gotta stand up and put one foot in front of the other. And so, yeah, the the what's coming in terms of mapping, um, and and 
gaming is only one component of it, but it's essentially this um, augmented reality world in which all sorts of new data sets are going to be blended into your real world experience in a way that will be seamless and integrated and new. Um, for the world of Pokemon Go, that's easy. It's you're walking around, you walk over to the Capitol, you pull out your phone, you're looking at the Capitol, but you then have Pokemon characters that are popping up around you. Um, if you're talking about Yelp, you'll be walking down 6th Street and you will hold up your phone and you will see restaurant reviews and bar reviews of individual businesses that are perfectly positioned and pegged to the front door of that business. Uh, if you're talking about a Zillow, you know, you're holding your phone up to a house and seeing, um, you know, what are the, what's the dimensions of this house or is it for sale and uh, the square footage and et cetera. So all the statistics, property tax, taxes, et cetera. So that stuff getting very blended and positioned to a specific house. If it's a hotel, it's uh, the room rates and, and, um, and availability that night. And it's, a, it's sort of a blending of that experience. And for that to happen, and it is happening, that data has to be perfectly positioned um, and pegged to a specific latitude and longitude with a specific viewpoint and angle. Um, and, and, uh, and so I think that's where mapping is really going to be headed now. It's where, where you, a walk down the street is going to be in terms of games, an opportunity to sort of theme your world with whatever IP or franchise or gaming entity that you're into, whether it be zombies or vampires or Pokemon or Harry Potter characters. So there's going to be that those types of fun and entertaining opportunities. But I think there's going to be all kinds of amazing commercial, useful opportunities around travel, around entertainment, around real estate that we're only starting to, to imagine. Yeah, I mean, when you say that, I... I think maybe we're the last generation that when looking yeah. at a house for sale yeah. doesn't already know what the price is, what the square foot is, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Because that makes so much sense and it would be easy to imagine that a year from now that's the standard. We just yeah. hold up our phone. It's coming fast. I mean, I I'm still involved in the mapping world in the augmented reality world and there are companies working on that very thing now. And so I think it's um uh Apple and Google are in a race in terms of the devices themselves to enable those types of experiences. Uh building in chipsets, building in cameras that are gonna really, I think, open up some amazing experiences. A walk around the Capitol you know, with all those statues as an example. So I think those I think you're gonna have like historical applications that are gonna bring those stories to life or a visit to the Alamo, you know, and sort of imagine holding your phone up to the Alamo and seeing all sorts of in interesting multimedia content. By the way, that content exists, but it'll be sort of uh, mashed into this new world and it'll be sort of blended in. So a statue will come to life and start speaking to you, or a cannon might fire off if you hold your phone up to a cannon. You can just imagine all sorts of amazing, some of it fun in the gaming world, some of it useful, um, but it's gonna be it's gonna be really cool. There's other Texans in this book. I mean, yeah. what's the Texas part of this? I mean, <laughs> I, I, is this part of sort of that outlaw spirit? Does this, is there some Texas takeaway to all this? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> there certainly are. I mean, there's uh, Phil Keslin, who's the CTO of our company, is a Texan. 
John Hankey, the CEO, is a Texan, myself. Um, Dan Clancy, who's another character who features heavily in the book, um, head of Google Book Search, now CTO of a, of a company called Nextdoor, if you've ever used Nextdoor, mm-hmm. another Texan, PhD in computer science. So uh, yeah, I think there might be a bit of the fact that if you're going to the computer science department at UT, or you're, in John's case, he was in the Plan 2 program, might have a little chip on your shoulder when you show up to Silicon Valley, like you're a state school guy, huh? And you want to prove your worth, right? And there's a hardworking element to it, which, um, well, if you've ever worked with anybody, ever worked on a ranch or a farm, you know, they're hardworking people. And so, you know, John grew up working, you know, with his dad, um, uh, you know, ranching cattle and such. And so those are hardworking people. And so, um, when you show up, you might have a bit more to prove. You might have a bit more to um, to uh, bring to the table in terms of your work ethic. Um, so, yeah, it might be a part of it. A Texan is responsible for our view of Silicon Valley, Mike Judge. Uh, yes. <laughs> that show, it nails it, but it also doesn't tell us a lot, right? I, well, tell me, tell me how you think it doesn't tell you a lot. I, I think it nails it. I love. You think it just I, flat out nails I, well, it? Well, okay, there's there's aspects of it maybe that are a bit drawn out and overdone, but there's some parts of it where I watch it and go, oh my god, I was totally at that. He was he must have been in the room in that scene, you know, the, the sort of uh, elaborate Silicon Valley tech party, you know, with uh, with some amazing band playing, and you've got the the. You know, the crowd is completely disinterested and looking at their shoes like, oh, my gosh, I've been there. It's so painful. (laughs) The next step is the Harry Potter part, right? Mm -hmm. This company goes project to project or are you working on the applications with other teams? How does all that work? Well, I mean, um, we went project to project. The first game that kind of proved the concept of this augmented reality, location-based, GPS-based game out was a was a project in a game that's still out called I- Ingress. And Ingress is more of a strategy game. It's got a cult following, about a million monthly active users, um, still being invested in by Niantic to um, as sort of our proving ground and our sandbox to go off in and try new things in. Um, so that was number one. Number two was was Pokemon Go in July of 2016, um, which was um, you know obviously hugely popular. Uh, you know about a tenth of what it was in the summer of 2016 today, but a tenth of a very large number is still is, it's still a very large number of people that are playing. So the next project up. Um, I think John was really smart to basically take that success and that proving ground of of Pokemon Go and sort of this true north of this new industry of augmented reality and go to Hollywood and go to LA and say, hey, do you want your version of this game? And essentially lock up uh, the top intellectual property entertainment franchises um, that you could imagine. And so, uh, yes, Harry Potter is the next game up. But there's also a um, a lineup of of companies and projects that are that uh, will be coming from Niantic and from other companies as well. I think that um, you know, with that kind of success, you you can imagine that there were lots of startups with suddenly which had a Pokemon Go 
slide or two in their investment deck about what they were going to go off and do. So I think you'll start to see more of those types of games coming out. So I'm leaving downtown today. I need to stop at Central Market on the way home Mm -hmm. and then ultimately get home using the least amount of traffic. I'm going to use mapping software to do that. Mm -hmm. What's the part of that whole situation that I maybe appreciate the least? That you appreciate the least. What's um, the most amazing part of that? I, you know, I go back to the to the world being a dynamic, changing place, and the the sort of notion of, um, you know, you're heading up Lamar, and if there's a wreck at 29th and Lamar, or if there's a, a water utility project at 38th and Lamar, you know, it's going to reroute you, and that's just uh, fascinating to me. That's so quickly that we are able to keep up with this um, dynamic changing place. And so there's a lot of work that goes in behind the scenes to make that happen. Um, and once you get routed down another street, um, maybe another person gets routed down another street, maybe then suddenly that gets backed up. And so it, you know the algorithm changes it up for the next set of people. Um, so it's a huge task and there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes. I think that, um, the the components of it that involve um, the self-driving cars and the aerial imagery and the satellite imagery and that stuff being um, also being up to date and kept up to date and so now it's a world in which if you've got um, a lot of people that seem to be going down a new street that we don't have mapped the Google Maps doesn't have there's they're learning from that and dis- dispatching street view cars and um, planes and satellite images of these new areas because it looks like there might be something new there. Um, and then, you know, trying to keep up with that new subdivision that goes in out in Dripping Springs. You know, you can imagine the sort of the difficulty of that, of a new subdivision opening up or a new street opening. Um, keeping up with that is really hard. There's all these Easter eggs out there where people have planted interesting things within the maps for people to find. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You guys, the original guys, mm-hmm. are you in there somewhere with something clever? <laughs> um, you know, there's been stories of that. Of I can only think of one, which is that Brian McClendon, who was one of the uh, head engineers on the team, basically if you were using Google Earth, and you would just zoom in to from space down to our planet without you know moving the screen at all but just zoomed right in you would wind up at a apartment complex in Lawrence Kansas and so it became this question of like why does Google Earth just you know Lawrence Kansas that was a big deal right, right. you know it's like why does it do that well it turns out that's where that was the apartment complex that when Brian was a kid his dad was a professor at University of Kansas. Um, that's where they lived. And so, uh, you know, he, he made it so that everything just flew right to where his hometown was, which is sort of a natural thing to do. Like, you want to show off where you grew up. And I'm sure it's even easier to build those Easter eggs into the new wave, into the Harry Potters, into the Pokemons, and make that more interesting for you guys. It is. And I think... Um, you know, there's uh, in the world of Pokemon Go, there's so many different characters. I don't know what Easter eggs are planted out there, but I'm sure they're out there. And I'm sure that uh, 
uh, somebody will find them one day, but I don't know what they are. <laughs> one other odd thing, I saw that you were involved in the China-Taiwan situation mm-hmm. before Trump was. So <laughs> years ago, you had this problem involving the maps. Yeah, I mean, there at any given time, there are dozens of countries that are involved in long-standing border disputes and naming disputes over who owns what territory. And, um, you know, I think that in the book, I sort of put that as like, that moment, that was the moment that I realized that I might have been a part of something bigger than a little startup was, was essentially having launched Google Maps and then, um, you know, within months starting to see the reaction for what was deemed to be um, a mislabeling of one territory or another. And so there are dozens of those types of uh, scenarios. In the case of the Taiwan versus China, it was basically that we had labeled uh, Taiwan as the public, the People's Republic of China, um, and if you're Taiwanese, you don't you don't think of yourself as part of the People's Republic of China. Uh, you think of yourself as an independent sovereign state. And so, by labeling uh, Taiwan a certain way, we had essentially taken side in this long-standing international dispute. And uh, lo and behold, outside of our window one day, there were hundreds of people protesting with like signs and megaphones and you know claiming that we had done all these horrific things um, just by labeling something one way the sort of UN approved way and you just wanted me to be able to get to the HEB yeah exactly (laughs) but uh, that ended up being something that we you know you sort of step into something that you didn't expect to step into and so um, all across the planet there were all sorts of um, Situations like that there was one in, in in Nicaragua in which we had sort of redrawn a border in a very hotly contested area um, between Nicaragua and Costa Rica, and we um, essentially took sides in that. And it was Nicaragua actually moved fifty soldiers into the territory that we had incorrectly drawn and claimed it as their territory because Google Maps said it was their territory. <laughs> so that was pretty weird. That was uh, to have that kind of impact and to see that kind of experience happening uh, was not something that we expected. Is this maybe the only game-changing technology application that didn't originally get tested and sort of blow up through pornography? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to think about that one. If there are some other technologies out there that weren't, uh, yeah, I don't think that, I don't think we benefited at all. I will say no, that. I don't think, I don't think I, there is such a thing as, as a map porn. Right. But yeah. I think that's interesting because all the other, whether it's video, <laughs> whether it's messaging, Mm-hmm. That was the first use. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were willing to take risks on things that were unproven. Mm-hmm. You didn't have. That's the only place I don't see the map technology. I I'll have to think about that one, but uh, you may be right. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Bill Kilday's Never Lost Again is available now wherever you buy books. As for us, our July issue is on newsstands now, and you can find us 24-7 at texasmonthly.com. If you like what you heard here, consider subscribing on Apple, on SoundCloud, or Spreaker. And look for our other podcasts there, too, including our new barbecue podcast, Fire and Smoke. Also, 
Optimism is neither intrinsic nor a passive disposition. In fact, optimism is a choice, a way of seeing the world, an active approach to living life that has real and tangible benefits. That's why Frost Bank and Texas Monthly are examining optimism in Texas today, introducing the Texas Optimism Project. Across the state, everyday people are forging their own futures. If you're ready to put optimism to work for you, learn more at texasmonthly.com forward slash Texas Optimism Project. I'm Andy Langer, working with producer Brian Standifer. Thanks for being here, and thanks in advance for coming back next week. You've been listening to the National Podcast of Texas, a production of Texas Monthly, the national magazine.